One, two, one, two, three, four. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Sales Hacker Podcast. It's your host, Sam Jacobs. I'm the founder of the Revenue Collective. We've now got chapters in Boston, Denver, Toronto, London, Amsterdam, and New York. So we are becoming the largest global community for commercial executives at high-growth companies in the world. And I'm also the Chief Revenue Officer of Behavox. But today, as you know, I am hosting the podcast and we're focused on an interview with somebody that we all should know about. It's Brent Adamson. So Brent Adamson was the co-author of The Challenger Sale and also the newly released The Challenger Customer, which the full title is The Challenger Customer Selling to the Hidden Influencer Who Can Multiply Your Results. Brent's a frequent contributor on sales topics at HBR, Harvard Business Review. He's been published in Bloomberg Businessweek, Forbes, and Selling Power. He's been at Gartner, originally corporate executive board for 15 years. And we are talking with literally the guy who wrote the book, one of the guys who wrote the book, on the entire Challenger concept, starting with the Challenger sale in 2008, and now with the newly released Challenger Customer, which was a really important book that I've recently just finished reading, and super important for sort of multi-stakeholder, complex enterprise sales cycles of which I am typically involved. Now, before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors as always. The first is Aircall. Aircall is a phone system designed for the modern sales team. They seamlessly integrate into your CRM. They're eliminating data entry for your reps, and they give you greater visibility into your team's performance through advanced reporting. When it's time to scale, you can add new lines and minutes and use in-call coaching to reduce ramp time for your new reps. Visit aircall.io forward slash sales hacker. That's aircall.io forward slash sales hacker. Type that into your computer right now. Buy something from them so that we can keep making the podcast and see why a bunch of other amazing companies are all using Aircall. Our second sponsor is also Outreach. Outreach Outreach.io is the leading sales engagement platform. Outreach triples the productivity of sales teams and empowers them to drive predictable and measurable revenue growth. By prioritizing the right activities and scaling customer engagement with intelligent automation, Outreach makes customer-facing teams more effective and improves visibility into what really drives results. So go over to Outreach.io forward slash sales hacker, where you can see how thousands of customers, including Cloudera, Glassdoor, Pandora, Zillow, all rely on outreach to deliver. And finally, finally, want to thank some fans out there that have been emailing me and reaching out to me on LinkedIn. Rachel Gray, Brent Gioni, I hope I pronounced his last name correctly, Laura Guerra, Allison Krieger-Walsh, Timothy Hartnett, Harrison Johnson, Nate Gugia, and then Oren Friedman, who was emailing me back and forth. We were talking about podcast concepts, and he said that he's hoping for something like an hour and a half long, like Joe Rogan. If you guys are interested in something of that length, really going deep with a particular interview subject, drop me a line on LinkedIn and let me know. So that's been a long preamble. Let's get to the heart of the matter, which is an amazing conversation with Brent Adamson, the co-author of The Challenger Sale, the co-author of The Challenger Customer, and a really respected and acclaimed author and speaker and facilitator from Gartner. So let's listen. Hey, everybody. It's Sam Jacobs, the host of the Sales Hacker Podcast. I'm also the founder of the Revenue Collective and the chief revenue officer at a company called Behavox. Today, we are extremely excited. We're talking to one of the co-authors of not just a series of books, but really a, a methodology and a philosophy that has really transformed how people sell 
over the last 15, 20 years. And uh, the first book, which I'll mention, had a big impact on me. And then the second book, which I actually just read, had an even bigger impact because I'm in the middle of a, of a company who sells exactly the way that, uh, that this book describes. So without further ado, let's talk about who we're going to be talking to right now. Uh, Brent Adamson is a distinguished vice president at Gartner. He's the co-author of The Challenger Sale taking control of the customer conversation, and the newly released The Challenger Customer, selling to the hidden influencer who can multiply your results. In addition, Brent's a frequent contributor on sales topics on Harvard Business Review's blog, as well as being published in Bloomberg Businessweek, Forbes, and Selling Power. Brent's been at the company for 15 years through the acquisition of corporate executive board that then became CEB into Gartner. And then before that, many, many years ago, he was uh, he was teaching German, I think, at Michigan State University in Lansing, Michigan. So he's been doing this for 15 years, been doing this for a long time. Uh, welcome, Brent. Hey, Sam. It's great to be with you and everyone. It uh, should be a fun conversation. Looking forward to it. I think, we're, first of all, we're just honored to have you. But there's probably three people in the world that, that aren't familiar with the Challenger sale at this point. And so for their benefit, even though you know uh, the rest of the $8 billion are, walk us through that first critical, almost revolutionary, you know, it's a book, but as I mentioned, it's a philosophy, it's, it's a way of life. And talk to us about what the central tenets of the Challenger sale are before we dive into the Challenger customer. Sure, Sam. Absolutely, I'd be happy to. The uh, I, I've never really thought of it as a as a way of life before, but I, I kind of like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, you know, uh, for for what it's worth, from my perspective, what I really think of it as more than anything else, and for that matter, the challenge of customer as well is is research, uh, and and that's that's the if you go back fifteen years in my sort of weird background as an academic, you know, I've essentially built a 25, 30 year career of researching and teaching the heck out of things, and for the last fifteen years, that's been B two B sales and marketing, and, and so if you go back to about 2008, 2009. You remember 2008, Sam? Things were not so good if you were selling back in 2008, because even if you were selling, nobody was buying, right? The economy was about to go off a cliff. Things were really dire. And if you talk to heads of sales around the world, as we did back then, and we continue to, the one thing you heard over and over again was, well, you heard two things. One was, we're not selling anything. And there was near, I don't know about panic, but a lot of concern, obviously, as just demand dried up. But the thing that was, the second thing we heard was really intriguing to all of us, including heads of sales who were sharing it with us, was how is it that in arguably the single worst economy in recent memory, if not ever. Uh, I still have these one or two people on my team who are crushing their number, who are still at, you know, everyone else is at 40% of goal. And I got these two people at 140% of goal. How is that even possible? And so that, that led us on a journey through a huge amount of research that continues on to this day, in fact, to try to figure out what sets those very different and very uh, effective sales professionals apart from everyone else. And, and in doing that work, that's what led ultimately to the challenger sale. And the premise uh, and really the findings of the work is largely based on this idea that when we studied what originally was about 6,000 sales reps. It's now well over 100, uh, you know, somewhere between one and 200,000 reps the last time I checked all over the world across geographies, go to market models, channels, industries, you name it. And we tried to understand what sets the best part from everyone else. And lo and behold, not something we had originally planned on studying, but it turned out, and we can come back to all the methodology, Sam, if you want, but just very briefly, it turns out virtually every sales professional has this tendency to fall into one of five distinct profiles. There's a, a relationship builder, a challenger, a hard worker, and so on. And what was really interesting is when we stepped back and looked at these five profiles and is that when, and compared them to actual performance, we found one of the five was performing head and shoulders above the other four. 
one of them was falling dramatically behind. And it was particularly interesting, particularly back you know, in 2008, when we showed these results to heads of sales, they would tell you, well, it's actually kind of hard to look at because we're placing our biggest bet on the profile least likely to win. And so the profile most likely to win was this challenger rep, and the one least likely to win was, in fact, what we've ultimately come the relationship builder. And it, it's led us on this journey of trying to understand who are these challengers, what are they doing that is so different? What about these relationship builders? Do relationships not matter in sales? I think we'd all agree relationships absolutely do matter in sales, although even that is changing. But it all comes back down to this very fundamental question, which is what is the relationship that you're seeking to establish with your, uh, your customers? What is it built on? Is it built on purely familiarity, or is it built on something we've come to call insight? Your ability to come to your customer and challenge their thinking. That's the name, challenger. Teach them a new way to think, not about your company, but to think about their company and a new way to make money, save money, uh, mitigate risk in ways that they didn't even know were possible. And it's those sales professionals who can diplomatically, professionally, culturally, correctly challenge the thinking of their customer to get that customer to think differently about what they're doing, how they're running their business, a new way to be more competitive that they hadn't fully appreciated. They're the ones that are most likely to win. So the, the challenger is story is all about who are these individuals? How can we replicate those behaviors? What are the skills behind it? What does that insight look like? Uh, you name it. You know, one of the things that I've uh, noticed in, the, in my travels is that a lot of people haven't really read the book, but they see the name The Challenger and they, they say, oh yeah, we do Challenger. And what they mean is sort of like this aggressive confrontational style of, <laughs> yeah. uh, of like being adversarial with the customer, which is, which is not what it means. What it means is what you just said, which is challenge the thinking and sort of bring commercial insight and commercial teaching into the conversation so that you can teach them how to, how to think about a new, a new way of thinking about their business. What was it in your research that how do you do that? Like, how do you figure out what are the insights that you should bring? I'm sure it's a conversation that could last hours, but what are some of the highlights in terms of developing the right tools so that a rep can, can move from relationship builder to, to challenger? It's interesting. For, for, by the way, I'd say real quickly, the, uh, the thing that I think is funny is I even a little, I'm a little concerned when people say, oh, we do Challenger. We did read the book because there's so much we've learned since we wrote that book about the world and, and the world that we're all selling into. And, and much of it actually is, in fact, captured in, in book number two, The Challenger Customer, which is then the direct answer to your question, which is how do we go about challenging the customer in the way, not that they think about us, but they think about their own business. And, and so actually it raises a really interesting question, Sam, which we explore in, in significant depth in book number two, which is if you're going to change the way your customer thinks about their business, Sam, what's the first thing you got to understand? What do you think? What do I think? Well, I have to, one of the things I need to, to help them understand is that the status quo is uh, untenable. Yep. That's good. I, I like where you're starting with. Let me, let me, but I, there's a real specific answer to this question. It's a bit of a trick question, too. So it's a little unfair to put you on the spot. I, but I got it wrong. Everybody's no, no, you, laughing. Didn't, you didn't get it wrong. You got it right, but I'm going to back up a step and just think and, and boil it down to brass tacks, which is if you're going to change the way a customer thinks about their business, what's the first thing you have to understand? And most people to answer that question is, well, I got to understand their business. And it's almost right, but not quite, which is, it's not so much you have to understand their business, but if you're going to change the way a customer thinks about their business, the first thing you have to understand is how they think about their business. You have to understand what we've come to call a mental model. And this is what we break down and get into a lot of detail across a couple of chapters in book number two is how does that customer, that prospective customer, that current customer think about their business? What do they prioritize? What do they think is important? What are they currently running after? What are their priorities? What are their goals? And of course, of course, you know, in the, in the old sort of classic solution selling approach, we used to say, well, yeah, you have to understand this stuff. So just go ask them all those questions. <laughs> so, well, what are you working on? What's keeping yeah. you up at night? What are your priorities? And nobody has the time 
time or the patience to answer all those questions or be interrogated by a sales rep. But nonetheless, that is the starting point. So there's a there's a lot of work that can be done, not just the individual level, but the organizational role where the supplier organization, you know, collaboratively can sit down and say, what do we know about a customer, not just this customer, but a customer like this? How do how do organizations like this typically operate? What do they typically consider to be important? In working with other companies like that, what have we found to be their key challenges? And then step back. And then once you lay all that out, so to lay out that mental model, that's sort of step one. How does that customer think about their business? What do they think is important? And then step two is to do something really sort of contrarian, which is sit back and say, okay, what'd they miss? What'd they get wrong? So normally we ask those questions to find out, what do you think? Okay, if that's what you think, here's how I can deliver help. But rather in step two in the challenger world is, okay, if that's what you think, what are you overlooking? What did you miss? Where might your logic be faulty or incomplete? Again, not with a view towards correcting them or fixing them per se, but adding to their knowledge, helping them understand the world and from a perspective they haven't fully appreciated on their own. So, so we, we think about it in terms of building a mental model and then breaking a mental model. So build the model, how do they think about the world, and then break that model. How can, how can we help them think about it in a more effective way than they're doing on their own right now? Do we have to read the books in sequence? Is it helpful? What are the key differences? Obviously, one ostensibly is about the rep and about the, the qualities of a, of a proper sales cycle, and the second is about understanding the customer better. But should we read them in sequence? And what are the key distinctions between the challenger sale and the challenger customer? Well, you know, I think in many ways, the book I'd read first is the book I haven't written yet, which is the third one, which is up in my head. So that's not doing anybody any good right now. But the, uh, because I, I think all of the, the context within which all of this is happening is changing really fast. And it's the context is not on the selling side, it's on the buying side. As we just see customers, B2B customers engaged in just radically different sets of buying behavior than were even on our radar screen when you first wrote the book, uh, either one of them. But that's not a very helpful answer. So, because all that shows up in our articles and our blogs and things like that in our meetings and, and uh, uh, that material now. But the place I'd start, I guess, would be... Um I, when I, I never read any book completely. So I guess I'd skim book one. I'd read the first couple chapters, maybe the first three chapters, one, I'd skim them. And then I'd dive into book number two. For what it's worth, if, uh, for my own personal belief, I think book number two is a better book. It is richer. It is more detailed. It ha- it's more practical. And it also is just, it's better only because we just knew so much more when we wrote book number two than when we wrote number one. And we, there's a quick review of the challenger concepts in book number two, so the challenger customer but but I think I think in many ways, book number two is more interesting and where our re- research continues to push because it's not really about selling at all. As much as we're talking about selling right now and, and the books ostensibly are about selling, book number two, The Challenger Customers, actually, as you know, uh, Sam, is more about buying. And, and I'll tell you, honestly, over the last about seven or eight years, this is where we've turned almost all of our attention at Gartner and the sales and marketing practice is not so much studying how can we sell more effectively or market more effectively, but how are customers buying today? And what does that shifting buying behavior mean for how we need to sell going forward? And I think one of the reasons why that matters so much is because, you know, as I've traveled around the world and shared the ideas of Challenger and, you know, on big stages and small around the world, I find that particularly when you're working with veteran sales professionals, people have been selling for 20, 30 years and been doing it incredibly successfully. They'll often kind of sit in the back of the room with their arms crossed and that kind of gruff, angry look on their faces staring at me like, who's this guy who thinks he knows what he's doing, right? Particularly if they get wind of the fact that I used to be a German professor, like, what does that mean? Mean? Where did that come from? Who are you to stand on the stage and tell me how to sell differently when, in fact, I've got a 30-year track record of doing amazing things? I've been to Cancun for the last you know, 
20 years in a row on the President's Club trip. I got more Lucite trophies on my credenza than anyone else at the company saying I'm the top sales professional. And, and so what we find is that the only way to really have that conversation with that individual who is incredibly skeptical of anything new is to come at it not from a, you're selling wrong and I'm here to fix you perspective, which is completely non-productive. It's just a non-starter. And that's really not how I think about it anyway. Rather, to come at it from the perspective of, irrespective of whether or not you've been successful in the past, the world that we are selling into today is just different. It is Customers are acting different. They're engaged in a different set of behaviors. They're operating in a different context, a context that, you know, denominated in information and run by the internet. And that changes everything. And, and so uh, when you start thinking about it as, as sort of, let me show you what happens when you take the old world of selling and run it into the teeth of the new world of buying and, and show you how things fall apart. That's just a more productive way to think about it. And that's where you won't catch much of that in the original book, The Challenger Sale, because we just weren't thinking about that at at the time. But I think the challenger customer kind of picks up, at least it begins to pick up on a lot of those themes of just how buying is different and what it means for all of us. Before we dive into the challenger customer, because again, to the point, I just read it and I've got tons of questions. So yeah. it's great to have you on the phone. If you're a relationship builder, if you're somebody that has been identified as sort of, you know, a rep or a, a profile or a set of attributes or, or behaviors that is ill-equipped to handle the modern selling environment. Is it, did your research tell you that it's possible to change? Can you become a challenger? Or are these patterns sort of ingrained in some way that makes it very difficult to evolve? It's, it's actually the former. So, uh, which is to say, we believe that anyone can adopt this set of behaviors. In fact, the, the entire research project from beginning to end and continuing on today is always built around behaviors as opposed to, um, say, talents or, you know, the great work that Gallup has done over the years, for example, that just the innate traits that we're all sort of born with, whether it be charisma, or something like that. Well, we find that stuff really interesting. We didn't want to study it only because we didn't want to land on a story that you could do nothing about. It's like, well, I guess you're, there's no hope for you. This is not a very you know helpful or, or optimistic sort of idea. So, so what we studied was behavior, skills, knowledge, attitudes, all of which can be changed through training, through coaching, through just modif- you know just studying practice. And, and so what we find is that in any given organization, anywhere between uh, what we're finding is most heads of sales have gone down on this journey, and there's been many, many, many sales organizations around the world that have invested pretty heavily in this stuff, these ideas over the years. And what we find just, it's anecdotal, but on average, heads of sales will tell us somewhere between 20 to 30% of their sales force either cannot or will not go on the challenger journey. No matter how much help you give them, no matter how much training you provide, how much coaching you, you support them with, they just don't seem to be cut out for that. But if you flip that on its head, Sam, that means you know 70 to 80% of Salesforce can, in fact, and does get there. And, and what, I, what I often find is that the bigger challenge is not skill, but in fact, will. It goes back to the, you know, I think I know what I'm doing, just get out of my way, let me do my job. Or, well, you want me to kind of challenge the customers thinking that feels a little provocative, that feels a little tough. And I just, I just kind of want to be everybody's friend. And, and that's not to say that challengers are unfriendly because in fact, they can be incredibly friendly. I think, I think if you take, in fact, I'll tell you something, Sam, you know, it's interesting when you dig into the data, you know what the second best thing that most world-class challengers are great at? They're great at relationship building. So the, there's nothing to say that these two things have to be mutually exclusive. In fact, just the opposite. I'd say that most great challengers are in fact, fantastic at relationships. It's just, they're basing that relationship, not so much on familiarity. Oh, my kids went to that same college. That's awesome. Right. But rather they're basing that conversation <laughs> that interaction on, on insights and ideas, which is what your customers ultimately are looking for anyway. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, it's encouraging to hear that it's possible to evolve. So let's dive into the challenger customer. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to sort of like articulate the stereotypical or the classic enterprise sales cycle and then have you just tear it to shreds (laughs) based on on the research that you've done. So, you know, typically what we see, right, what we're taught, and maybe this is going even further back when it really wasn't so much multi-stakeholder, but first of all, you use BANT or some kind of qualification methodology that tells you, do they have budget authority? authority need timing and authority is a key one right so what you're taught in an enterprise sales cycle is you need to get above the power line you need to speak to power and you need to be dealing with the people that ultimately sign the checks and those are the only people that make decisions and so the sales process is about as you mentioned before you have like a medic or medical or med cars or you know some acronym that basically is a checklist for the rep yeah. to cross off in terms of things that they need to get questions they need answered and they take that list probably as high as they can get it to the chief something or other officer that they're selling to and they fill out all the information and then you know at some point they move through procurement etc etc but so walk us through why that doesn't really work anymore and walk us through the key concepts that we should be familiar with as it relates to the challenger customer well so you know over the years as as virtually every large b2b or and i suppose small for that matter or um, sales organization has moved towards the posture of selling some kind of let's call it solution right so whether you sell an individual product or an individual service largely you've added more capabilities, more services, more products around that one original package to ultimately form what we've all kind of collectively come to call a solution. And we're all trying to sell these broader solutions, which add more value to the customer organization at a higher price point, at a you know at a, a bigger margin. And of course, we're, we're doing this not just because it's a better price point, better margin, but also because it allows us to differentiate ourselves from the competition, right? If you're selling an individual product that's easily replicable, it's very quickly commoditizable at the same time. So the, the way you escape that commoditization trap, of course, is you offer you know, a broader solution that offers more value to more people across the customer organization. Now, the, the thinking originally in, in solution selling, and probably was a right at some point, I guess, but was if you're going to sell this bigger, broader solution with a wider footprint and arguably the higher price point, then the only way to really get that sold into an organization is that you, you got to get high up in that organization. You got to claw your way up to the corner office. You got to get into the C-suite. You got to sell the veto. Is that you got to find that really important person that has the altitude, the scope, the authority to look down across that broader solution and say, absolutely, let's go. And so that, that's been the you know, there's kind of two sort of marching orders we've all received over the years in selling these kinds of solutions is number one, get as high as you can. And number two, you've got to find a champion, right? So a senior, so the ultimate unicorn is like that senior advocate, right? That senior executive who's going to take your flag and champion you across the, the customer organization and say, we got to buy these guys. They're awesome. And what we found is that for many different ways and for many different reasons, uh, that person, first of all, doesn't exist. But more importantly, uh, and here's why I think, well, there's a couple of reasons why, but I think the thing that's especially important to acknowledge now is that even if you were to find that person, that very senior C-suite officer who loves your solution and wants to in- integrate that IT technology or that new HRM solution or that uh, you know that that consulting engagement, whatever it is, across the organization, we're finding even those senior individuals are unwilling to buy that solution on their own. And frankly, they're smart not to be willing to buy that on their own because they know they've come to realize that these solutions have become big enough and broad enough and and integrated enough into other parts of the organization that lots of different people 
have to sign off on this. And so in many ways, the heart and soul of the sort of the launching pad of the, the Challenger customer was uh, this very specific uh, uh, data point, which we discovered in studying how these solutions actually get purchased. And, and when we studied thousands and thousands of individu individuals, stakeholders, all involved in some purchase of a large complex solution, we simply asked all these individuals, how many people in your organization are, are typically involved in, in the officially in this purchase and have to ultimately sign off on its on its uh, uh, on its purchase and implementation. And that number came back at, at 5.4. So that entire book, The Challenger Customer, is all written about the 5.4. The 5.4, the 5.4 individual stakeholders across an organization who all ultimately have to sign off on a deal uh, to get it done. Now, a couple things about that, Sam, that's interesting, that, that 5.4 number is since that book came out, and this is why I talk about our more recent research, is since we first did the research that sits in, in that book, The Challenger Customer, we've rerun that research every year. We continue to ask every year, you know, somewhere between two and 4,000 individual stakeholders all involved in a complex purchase of a B2B solution. How many people are involved in the purchase? The, the, next, year went, uh, the next year we got the data back, it went from 5.4 up to 6.8. Uh, no. It went from 6.8 up to 7 point something. This year we got the data back, it's over nine. Uh, so it's, oh, it's yeah. a huge, huge number. And I think it actually it might be worthwhile to talk about why that number is so high. But just anecdotally, it's really interesting. I did a meeting of chief sales officers back in June in Chicago, and I was sharing our latest data on that number. And there's a head of sales there who said, you know, look, just this is because it's honestly it's gone up so fast and so much, Sam, that we actually as a research organization have begun to doubt our methodology. It's like, how could this number be so high? How could the exact same methodology return such a dramatically and rapidly increasing number? And we actually had a big meeting here in our offices in Arlington, Virginia, about whether or not we still trust the number and should report it publicly. And, and so now we report it as a range of six to ten. But a head of sales in Chicago saw this at, at one of our chief sales officer meetings. This is funny you say it because I, th I think you're right. You should doubt that number not because it's too high, but because it's too low. And he said, "Oh, I'm not. I'm not doubting. I'm not doubting it. I'm. I'm depressed about it." it. Right? Uh, you know, he, he said that he recently went out and did a closing call, and there was a multi-million dollar deal, and they'd been the thing had been in the pipeline for like 18 months. Right? It's not like they didn't know what was going on, and they had they had the champion. They had that senior advocate who wanted their solution. They were in fact they were so sure that this deal was going to close that they flew up the senior leadership of their company on the corporate jet with the contract in the hand and the Mont Blanc pen and ready to sign the contract. Everyone's all excited. And they're in their best suits and their cufflinks and ready to go, ready to go. And they, they walk in the door of the customer organization. And I kid you not, there's literally 16 different people sitting around the conference table, all waiting for that meeting. And, and they thought it was gonna be like one guy who's going to sign off on the deal and everyone's gonna be happy. And instead that meeting started with those 16 individuals all introducing themselves to each other. Right. Oh, you're Bob yeah. from procurement. I've never been so great to put a name with a face. We've only met on email. You know, it's like, and, and which has led us to, by the way, conclude the single rule of sales today is, you know, you're not going to close a deal when the meeting, the customer meeting begins with customers introducing themselves to each other. But this is what happens in the world that we're in. And, and again, this has evolved even rapidly since the customer, the challenger customer came out, which is if you think about why are there so many people involved in the purchase of a solution, it's the very, you know, part of it is the very thing that I started this response with, which is as we seek to expand the scope and the value of the solution that we deliver so that it touches more people inside the customer organization and delivers more value for more people, it stands to reason all those people are going to have a say 
in what actually gets purchased. But, but I think particularly in the last two years, the thing that's really been driving this number of people problem is data and, and data security. So GDPR, for example, more recently, has introduced a whole host of regulations that customers, hey, before we will say, before we buy this system now, we need to understand how does it integrate with our IT platform, whether it's IT driven or not. How does, you know, who owns the data? Does the data sit in the cloud? How is it secure? Who's responsible? So there's lawyers involved. There's, of course, procurement involved. There's end user communities. There's IT departments. There's, it's like herding cats. And, and so to think that somehow you could claw your way into a corner office and find that one senior decision maker is willing to sign off on this and his or her own, even if they own the budget, is a pipe dream, honestly. It's just not going to happen today. It's just because that's not how customers buy. Do you think that part of uh, trying to make this extremely tactical, if the number is 9 or 5.4 or 7, do you think part of the framework of trying to process ties uh, or operationalize this is, hey, you've only spoken, we only have contact with four people and research shows it's 6 to 10, so we have to score the deal lower than we would if you had engagement with seven or eight people, even if we didn't confirm that all of those seven or eight people were exactly the right people that needed to, to chime in? I think at the very least, if you're talking to one or two people, that that deal should be suspect at best, right? So because because what'll happen is that person, if you're talking to them, the reason you're talking to them is because they because they're talking to you, right? They're willing to have that conversation, and that they'll take the meeting and they'll share information, and every conversation feels fantastic. But but unless they're willing to go fight the good fight inside their own organization of herding those cats and building that consensus, we have found that those conversations you're having with that one individual can in fact be symptomatic of well. Well, nothing really that of no progress whatsoever. We we call those individuals who talk a lot to you but don't actually aren't very good inside of of, of driving change inside their own organization. We call them talkers, and, and this is what the really the challenger customer book is all about: is talkers versus what we call mobilizers. And we can come to back to mobilizers here in a second if you'd like. But the uh, you know the the talker is a really tough stakeholder to, to encounter as a sales rep because it feels so good, right? They'll they'll take the meeting, they'll take the next meeting, they'll dish the dirt, they'll share what's going on, they'll they'll tell you who they think is involved. But unless either you are able or they are willing to go to those other people and connect them and get them excited equally excited about that solution, nothing's going to happen. And what we ultimately find is, particularly in our latest data, is that you as a sales rep have decreasing amounts of access to those other people, that customers are spending less and less time talking to sales reps as part of a purchase. And so ultimately, it becomes incredibly important to find that, you know, we used to say find an advocate for your solution. But what we ultimately have to find is not so much an advocate for your solution, but an, a mobilizer for change. Because at the end of the day, Go ahead. Yeah, why don't you tell us? I mean, the mobilizers, there's a couple key insights, and obviously finding the mobilizer, and there's three types of mobilizers. So just walk us through. First of all, there's not one kind of mobilizer. Explain to us all the different flavors of mobilizer. And then I think the most, one of the most critical insights from the book for me was you're not connecting to all of these people. You are using the mobilizer to connect themselves to each other, as you sort of alluded to uh, in the first part. So walk us through that construct. So a couple thoughts on this. So the, um, the the book opens up the challenge of customer in chapter one, this really intriguing and frankly, when we first saw a terrifying piece of data, which was only because it seems to run directly in the face of everything we'd found in the past and everything that seems so logical. And that piece of data simply is this, that at a high level, 
the more effective you are personalizing your pitch or positioning your value to each individual stakeholder in the customer organization, what he or she cares about, the less likely you are to win what we call a high quality sale. So the better and better you get at tailoring or positioning your offer to each one of those individual stakeholders and what they care about as an individual, the less likely you are to win a high quality sale. And that that made no sense to us when we first saw it until we, and, and so we reran the numbers about eight different times and, re-ran, and reworked all the data. We couldn't make that finding go away. And, and ultimately, Sam, just to cut to the end of the chase, that, the punchline of the story is what we found is that it's not just a numbers problem. Whether again, whether it's five or six or ten or sixteen, what we really have inside the customer organization as a challenge is what I would call a diversity problem. In this sense, in the sense that each one of those individual stakeholders represents a different function, a different level, a different geography, a different set of priorities, agenda inside their organization. Some from procurement, someone from HR, someone from IT, someone from the end user community, someone from the Germany office, whatever it might be. And as each one of them has a different set of priorities of what they're trying to accomplish on behalf of their company, they just, their mental models don't ultimately overlap very much. And so what happens when that group comes together to make a collective decision, what they find is that they tend to fall back on what they agree on. We call this the lowest common denominator purchase. And the lowest common denominator purchase, more likely than not, is the things they're going to agree on would be things like, let's study this more. Let's avoid disruption. Let's mitigate or, or, or minimize risk. Let's reduce cost. And so if you're selling into this environment, what we're finding is that it's the more you personalize your pitch to each one of those stakeholders and the more they are already disconnected, you actually exacerbate that disconnect rather than overcome it. So, so in many ways, what we've got to figure out in selling into this world of multiple purchase stakeholders is not doing a better job of connecting those individual stakeholders to us, but doing a better job of connecting those individual stakeholders to each other. And so that that's part one. So how do we do that? How do we connect those individual stakeholders to each other so they can coalesce around a much broader common vision than simply do nothing, study it more, pay less, because it's bad to be on the you know the receiving end of that kind of purchase process. And what we found is that in that kind of world, what we're looking for is not someone who's senior or someone who is a champion of your solution, but rather, uh, and we can go back and unroll all the methodology behind this if you'd like too, but what we found is that when we studied star performing sales reps and asked them, what are the attributes that you're really looking for in a customer stakeholder? Lo and behold, they were looking for two things. They were looking for stakeholders that were able to drive change and build consensus. And, and so, which is a really interesting thing to find. No one's ever trained them to do this, by the way. They just kind of figured this out on their own. So things like seniority, title, decision-making authority, budget ownership, none of that stuff turned out to matter to star performers when we studied them. It was just these two things, the ability to, to drive change and, and build consensus. So why build consensus? Well, for the very reason we've just talked about, that at the end of the day, if you can't get that broader buying group, that diverse, that large buying group to coalesce around a, a common vision that's greater than simply do nothing, no one's buying anything, certainly not at a, at, a, uh, at a high margin. So that's the building consensus part, which totally makes sense. Drive change, on the other hand, is especially interesting because the reason why that pops is what we ultimately have come to realize in all of our work is at the end of the day, no matter what kind of company you are, no matter what you're selling, whether it's a product, whether it's a service, whether it's med device, consulting, manufacturing, tool and die, it doesn't matter. We all sell ultimately the same thing. What we ultimately sell, Sam, is we sell change. Every one of us, we're trying to get our customers to change their behavior, either stop buying that, start buying this, stop buying from the competition, start buying from us, stop buying the small amount, start buying the big amount, stop doing it yourself, outsource it to us. In one way or another, every one of us is trying to get our customers 
to change their, ba- their, their behavior. And, that, and I, in fact, I told our sales reps just the other day, look, you guys aren't in the product selling business. You're in the behavior changing business. And that's how you need to think about it. And that's how you got to solve for, for the, the today's biggest sales challenges. So ultimately, what we're looking for is individuals inside the customer organization that we can connect to that are able to drive change and build consensus. We have a name for those individuals. We ultimately call them mobilizers because that's who they are. They're the mobilizers of action. They're the mobilizers of an idea. And, and what these mobilizers ultimately want, by the way, is, is not, they're not looking for a solution or a product or a service or a supplier. What mobilizers are looking for is an idea an insight, something that's going to help their company compete more effectively. It's, it's the mirror image of the challenger world. It's that same kernel of insight, which is why we call mobilizers the, the challenger customer, because they're the challenger inside the customer organization. And, and you're right, there's three flavors. There's what we call a teacher, a go-getter, and a skeptic. A teacher is someone who's is particularly open to big ideas and is good about motivating others around those big ideas. A go-getter is someone who's open to new ideas, but is particularly good at project planning and making action happen around those ideas. And a skeptic, by the way, the particularly interesting one to me is that someone will actually, when presented with a new idea or new insight, will tear that thing apart piece by piece. And if you're not ready for that, if you're a traditional sales rep looking to build relationships, talk about where your kids went to college, that's going to feel really uncomfortable because that skeptic is going to take your idea, if you've delivered one at all, and pull it apart look at it from every angle. And what we've come to appreciate in all our work, though, is that that's not a bad thing. That's actually a good thing, because that's your customer just trying to understand that idea and its applicability in their, in their organization. And, and ultimately, what, we've, what we found is if you can win a skeptic over, they become an incredibly powerful mobilizer, because they're not mobilizing for you. They're mobilizing for this idea, this insight that they've just become convinced is, could potentially have a powerful impact on their business. So, so that's what the challenger customer is all about is who are these mobilizers? How do I find them? What is this insight that we call the insight that the, the mobilizer dog whistle, right? It's the thing that only mobilizers can hear. So what is that? You know, how, how do I build that insight? That's where the mental model stuff comes in. How do I deliver it? Uh, you name it. So how, how let's uh, see if we can, you know, get a few high level, uh, anecdotes before we encourage people to buy the book, which is, which is one of the things we want them to do. How do you find a mobilizer? What are the tests you can use or the, you know, what are the frameworks to help you identify a mobilizer within an organization? And also one follow-up question. If, if you're in a sales cycle and you haven't found what you, you use a test or you're using some framework and you haven't found a mobilizer, I would assume that your advice is keep going until you find one. Maybe, unless it's going to take you, you know, months or even years. But yeah, I, at the very least, I think whether or not you've connected to a mobilizer becomes a really interesting and I think effective opportunity qualification tool, right? Or, or score. So to what degree is this person a mobilizer? So how do you find them? You, the, the, our, our best take on how to find a mobilizer right now is um, through that which a mobilizer is ultimately looking for. Remember, a mobilizer is not looking for a supplier. A mobilizer is looking for an idea. Uh, and that becomes a really important thing to understand because if you approach a mobilizer with your value proposition or your capabilities or your solution, that ultimately isn't going to help very much because that's not what they're looking for. What they're looking for is a story not about your company, but about their company. Uh, and again, we call this insight or even more technically commercial insight because it's ideally insight that you can that you can monetize on the back end. So you're not just the free consulting business. And we go through a lot of that in the book about how to figure all that out. But the uh, 
an insight or a commercial insight, a monetizable insight, is an insight that about the customer's company or organization that helps them understand a risk that they're exposed to that they've underappreciated, an opportunity that they've overlooked that could help them make money in ways they hadn't appreciated in the past, a, a cost that they're exposed to that they, that they didn't calculate effectively in the past. And in, in doing so and in, in helping them understand that their current behavior is exposing them to cost or risk, what you're, the idea is that you are opening their mind to change. Remember, if we're all in the same business, we're in the business of selling change, the one thing you want to do is get your customer to be open to changing their behavior, which is, think about it, it's actually really hard because what's one thing your customer doesn't want to do at all costs? Probably change, right? It's, 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 it's Nobody will ever tell me about it, right? So it's it's expensive, it's disruptive, it's hard, it's unknown. There's a, I don't want to change. So, which by the way is why selling solutions is so hard, right? You put it together, it's like the one thing we're selling is one thing your customers don't want to be buying, and I think that's why all this stuff is so is so darn difficult, right? But what we found is is that insight is really an idea. In fact, our friends at um, ADP Dealer Services, which is a, a division that's been since been spun off from ADP into its own company, but they developed a phrase for this as they adopted challenge in organization. They said, you know, if, if customers don't want to change, they want to stay the same, then what, what we need to do with our insight is teach our customers that the pain of same is greater than the pain of change. That's really what commercial insight is all about, is teaching your customers that the pain of same is actually greater than the pain of change. And, and if you can approach your customer with a story like that, what you're looking for is how do they, how does that individual that you're sharing that story with, whether, by the way, something that we haven't touched on today, Sam, is whether you're talking to them in person or you're approaching them with that story through digital channels, online, through content, but we can park that and come back to it some other time perhaps. But nonetheless, how does your customer react to that story of change versus same? How do they react to that insight? Are they excited about it? Do they engage with it? Do they ask questions about it? Do they tear it apart? That's a skeptic. That's good. Because you're looking for engagement, engagement on idea. If their reaction is like, oh, this is really interesting. Hey, this is really fun. I love you guys. You have smart things to say. And nothing ever happens. That's probably a talker. Uh, and there's a third category we haven't mentioned yet, which is if they don't even engage with you, they, they're just absolutely not interested in talking to you whatsoever. You know, they're in year two of a three-year implementation plan or they're in, uh, the, you know, that's the, I love that one, by the way. I hear that a lot. We often refer to that person as a blocker. A blocker is, and by the way, a blocker isn't blocking you. It's not like they don't like you. It's not personal. What a blocker is blocking is change. And so it becomes really interesting. So is this person open to change and clearly willing and able to drive it and build consensus around it? Do they talk a good game, but frankly can't follow through? Or are they just against change altogether? So a mobilizer, talker, and blocker. And that becomes, I think, a really effective way to begin to think about who am I talking to in this opportunity? Because again, to your earlier question, Sam, I don't know that you need to talk to all 10 or 17 people, but at the very least, you need to find one who can go do that talking on, I guess, technically on your behalf. Behalf, although it's really on behalf of the insight that you're sharing. And that's, that's where this stuff gets really, really powerful. So Brent, this has been amazing. So we're just about out of time, but the high level outline again is sort of identify if we're in a, again, a complex enterprise sale, the challenger customer teaches us, find a mobilizer, arm them with commercial insight. But what are the steps if we were just sort of taking notes at home and making a bulleted list that we can dive into with greater detail later? 
Well, I, you know, in some ways, just to hint at where our work is right now is um, uh, so find the mobile. So, so build the insight, step one, deploy the insight, I suppose, step two, whether it's in person or through digital channels, and then watch for reactions. And so find the mobilizer and equip them with that insight. And then I, I think the thing that's really interesting, and we only just touched on at the back of the book is where our thinking really is now, is that just because someone wants to be a mobilizer, Sam, or is, is open or willing or able to be a mobilizer, doesn't necessarily mean they're going to know how to be a mobilizer. And what we've come to really appreciate is that particularly as buying continues to change and continues to change rapidly, again, with regulations, GDPR, different stakeholders, data, the role of data, all these questions that customers have, and they're overwhelmed with too much information and, you know, in the internet, uh, from the internet today, that many times customers are just, they just get stuck. Even a mobilizer can get stuck. And what, uh, what customers really need more than anything else, honestly, and when it comes to buying something is just help. They just need someone to kind of you know, effectively take them by the hand and guide them through the purchase process. So, so if Challenger Commercial Insights is all about teaching customers to think differently about their business, this where we're at right now is now you got to teach your customers literally how to buy, who should be involved. Because oftentimes when a deal blows up, it blows up because someone inside the customer organization came out of the woodwork at the last minute and blew everything up with a bunch of questions. And the customer's like, oh, I didn't see that coming. And you're on the sales side saying, oh, I totally saw that coming. It's happened to me three times this year. And so that, that the, the idea here is we could actually take a much more proactive role in coaching our customers through the purchase, essentially taking them by the hand and becoming the buying Sherpa. So imagine not just finding a mobilizer, but becoming your mobilizer's buying coach by helping them understand things like, by the way, you probably want to get procurement involved. And when you want to get them involved, it's probably earlier than you thought. And when you get them involved, they're going to have, the, here, going to have these three questions. And here's the, here's the best way to answer those three questions. Here's the two objections they're going to have. Here's how to overcome those objections. By the way, put all this together in a PowerPoint deck for it's already annotated, ready to go. And your mobilizer is going to say, wow, you just made my life so much easier. And this is where our work is right now, Sam, is this idea that in a world where we believe this and, and have a huge amount of data to back it up, that B2B buying has become incredibly difficult. That one of the best things you could do is just find ways to make buying easier. And that's what I add to the last step there is this design finding a mobilizer is coaching that mobilizer. Makes a lot of sense. Brent, this has been fantastic. So obviously the full title of the most recent book is The Challenger Customer, Selling to the Hidden Influencer Who Can Multiply Your Results. The link will be in the show notes. If folks want to reach out to you, engage with you, or engage Gartner in some way, what's the preferred mechanism for them to learn more about the Challenger Customer in particular, and potentially adopt it for their business? They can reach out to me personally. Probably the easiest thing to do is over uh, LinkedIn. However, I'm also at brent.adamson at gartner.com. Uh, or they can just go to our website, gartner.com. And, and there you'll, you'll uh, of course, you won't go right into the sales practice. You there's Because Gartner, of course, is a huge company with practices across every seat in, uh, around the boardroom. But one way or another, I think we can get you where you need to go. And there's just a huge amount of, of, of help that we can provide companies in, in thinking about all of this work. And I think for me personally, what's most interesting is what we continue to find now and all of the, how this research continues to update itself year after year because the world keeps changing. And so that's where joining or becoming part of the Gartner sales practice becomes, I think, a really powerful thing to do. That sounds fantastic. Brent, thanks so much for your time and thanks for appearing on the Sales Hacker Podcast. Absolutely, Sam. It was great to be with you today and I look forward to doing it again soon. Hey everybody, it's Sam again. Another great interview. 
Brent is so eloquent. He obviously is so passionate about the subject. If you haven't read The Challenger Sale, I think you should. And if you haven't read The Challenger Customer and you're in B2B Enterprise Sales, I really think you should. They are two fantastic books and they helped codify this, this really important insight, which is that your job as a salesperson is not to just show up and talk about the features, the speeds and the feeds of your product. Your job is to understand the life and the mental model of your customer and to help them change. And what you're selling is change. You are not selling a specific product. What you are selling is the concept of change and the concept that the status quo is untenable and the only way to fix the status quo is to change. That is, a, I think, a critical insight from the challenger methodology. Also, just to reiterate, because so many people have talked about challenger sales without really reading the book so that they think it means being an asshole. Uh, just to be clear, it does not mean being an asshole. That's not the point of the challenger sale. It's not to be aggressive and rude. It's to bring commercial insight into the conversation. Commercial insight is to teach somebody something about their business that they did not know beforehand. And that is the concept of in the challenger sale, they call it teach, tailor, take control. The whole concept is teach them something about their business that they didn't know beforehand. And what you're looking for when you're involved in this kind of sale, you're not looking for, wow, you're so insightful or wow, you're a really good salesperson. That is usually the kiss of death. If somebody says that, you're losing the deal. What you're looking for them to say is, huh, never thought about it that way. When you present a new, unique commercial insight into a sales conversation and you teach them something about their business and their industry that they didn't know, you position yourself as a thought leader, you position yourself as expert, and you help them understand why you should be credible when it comes to presenting the conversation in the right way. So this has been Sam's Corner. Before we go, we want to thank our sponsors, Aircall, your advanced call center software, complete business phone and contact center, 100% natively integrated into any CRM, and Outreach, a customer engagement platform that helps efficiently and effectively engage prospects to drive pipeline and close more deals. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter at Sam F. Jacobs or on LinkedIn at linkedin.com, the word in, I-N slash Sam F. Jacobs. And lots of folks have been reaching out to me. Please do so. Please tell your friends about the podcast. Please share some of the content. And if you have great ideas for guests, please let us know that as well. I will talk to you next time. 